because it gives me very great pleasure to introduce Professor Quentin Skinner. He's not only a dear colleague at Queen Mary, but he is also, and I think in this case this is true, I may say he's a world-renowned historian of political thought. Um, he is the Barbara Beaumont Professor of Humanities at Queen Mary since 2008. Before that, he had a long and very distinguished career at Cambridge University. And there, are, there were several diversions as um, visiting professor in the last decade alone, I think, to Chicago, Beijing, Princeton, Harvard, Amsterdam, and so on. And it has actually everything to do with him that the so-called Cambridge School of History um, of Political Thought uh, is called exactly that. Um, and sometimes we will also hear of the Skinner and Pocock approach to intellectual history. Now this also has a lot to do with him if one rather crudely lumps J.G.A. Uh, uh, Pocock's work together with his in spite of the differences. And I'm very, very happy that he agreed to give this lecture to us tonight because he's a very sought after speaker worldwide. Um, this may have to do with two facts. One is that he's a good speaker, at least he has to live up to uh, his own rules because in our PhD program at Queen Mary, which I happened to convene as director of graduate studies for a number of years before I came here, he always gave a, an annual lecture to our PhD students how to give a good conference paper. Now, <laughs> you have to live up to your own rules now, Quentin. <laughs> and I do know that some of these PhD students his own PhD students, in fact, um, are with us tonight. Um, the second reason that he is a sought-after speaker may have to do with the fact that his research is exciting. And um, his work is on the methods um, and the writing of the history of political thought um, and the history of philosophy on the one hand, uh, and then, on the other hand, it is on political thought in early modern Europe. And it certainly centers on the Italian Renaissance, um, often on Machiavelli, but also on 17th century England. And Shakespeare and Thomas Hobbes um, are thinkers that he has particularly uh, concentrated on. Um, but he also has a very broad interest in ideas of um, representation of political liberty of the state. So what is the state? What does representation mean in the Renaissance or um, in the uh, time of uh, Reformation or in the 17th century? Um, when I saw the list of his books, um, I counted 17 books and he's on the editorial board of 19 journals and I didn't even start to count the prizes because the list is too long. <laughs> but so let me just name the most well-known books and the ones that you could most easily access to um, kind of inform yourself about his most exciting ideas. So there are um, there is a volume um, called Meaning and Context, Quentin Skinner and His Critics from 1988, which um, uh, edits a lot of his con collected essays. And then there's another one regarding method from 2001, where you can read up on his methodical essays. Uh, he has also edited Machiavelli's The Prince. And uh, he is very well known for the two volumes of the foundations of modern political thought. And uh, the first volume deals with the Renaissance, um, and the second one with the Age of Reformation. And they appeared with Cambridge University Press. And then maybe I should also name um, 2014 Oxford University Press Forensic Shakespeare, um, a very interesting reading of Shakespeare um, according to his own methods. Um, Thank you very much for agreeing to give this talk, and uh, over to you, Quentin. Um, 
Thank you very much, Christina. Sehr vielen Dank. Thank you all for coming. Well, this is a lecture about Thomas Hobbes's visual strategies, so I think I need to begin by considering the cultural context out of which Hobbes's extraordinary deep interest in the visual emerged. So Hobbes was born in 1588 and received a type of education absolutely typical of European Renaissance at the time. At school, in this country, what you basically learnt was grammar, meaning the Latin language, hence, of course, grammar schools, and you learnt how to speak Latin to the best rhetorical effect. If you then went on to university, you began by studying classical rhetoric in much greater detail. It took up the whole of your first year at university. You then moved on to dialectic, I mean, meaning uh, logic, and then history and moral philosophy. That's the course that Thomas Hobbes followed as an undergraduate at the University of Oxford between 1604 and 1608. So notice, both at school and at university, the extraordinarily strong emphasis on learning the rules of classical rhetoric at school and at university. So what did these classical rhetoricians teach? Well, according to the greatest of them, uh, and especially the greatest of the orators, Cicero, the most important thing you need to know, and I'm here citing from his De Oratore, which was a set text, of course, in most Renaissance universities. The most important thing you need to understand in relation of rhetoric to dialectic is there are always two sides to any question. That may not be true in the pure sciences, might not be true in grammar or in mathematics, his two examples of pure sciences, but in what he already calls the scientia humana, in the human sciences, there are always two sides to the question in any topic that comes up for debate. So it follows that you can never hope to persuade people by means of reason alone, because there are always going to be reasons in utramque partem. So as Cicero says, the question then is, and there's a deep pun here on the Latin verb movere, um, how can I move you to my side? And since I can't move you by reason, I'm going to have to move you by arousing your emotions. I'm going to have to move you by moving you. <laughs> and so there is the thought, the addition of oratio to ratio. Of course you must reason, but you must know how to persuade. <laughs> So the central question is, how do I persuade you to come round to my side? Well, Cicero says in the De Oratory, that's what the rhetorician can teach you. There are many means, but two above all are emphasized. One is you must know the optimum way to organize a forensic argument of any kind. And that is called a knowledge of invention, hence Cicero's treatise De Inventione the correct invention of arguments. Actually, their view of what constitutes an optimum argument would surprise all of us, I think, um, nowadays. And I'm not going to go into that, but that's the first thought. Invention is what you have to understand. The other is you have to learn to speak with so much vividness and eloquence that your audience is enabled to see what you are talking about. And of course, see has this pun, now I see, meaning I understand. But they want that pun to be very visual. And this is what Aristotle, in the art of rhetoric, had called speaking with energia. With so much vividness, as Cicero says, translating him, that you turn your listeners into spectators. Okay, so how's the question? There's the question. How are you going to speak so vividly, so eloquently, that your audience is able to see what you're claiming. Well, this is where the classical rhetoricians introduce the so-called figures and tropes of speech, especially the master trope of metaphor. And we still speak in the English language of these figures of speech as imagery. Notice that language that makes you see things. You're going to see images. So there's one thought. The the um, metaphoricality of language, the, especially the power of simile and metaphor. That will produce energia because you're going to get pictures instead of descriptions. That's what imagery does. But in the, that's classical, but here in, in the era of the Renaissance, the earliest age of the printed book, a further claim begins to be made by the rhetoricians, which is that surely, they say, 
if what we're trying to do is to turn um, listeners or readers into spectators, the best way of getting an audience to see something is not to offer them figures of speech, but to offer them actual figures, as we still say in illustrated books, figure one, figure two, figure three, show them figures. Not figures of speech, but actual pictures. Now, that commitment to the pictorial, fundamental to Renaissance art, gives rise to two very important developments in the early age of the printed book. One is the emergence of a genre, which I shall have a lot to say about in this lecture, um, of so-called emblemata, emblem books, of which there are thousands of titles. I mean, that's to say, I don't mean thousands of copies, I mean thousands of books of which there are then thousands of copies. If you go across the road to the British Library, it's a huge holding, the, the emblemata. These are books of moral theory and religious devotion uh, in which there is a moral lesson which is usually written in verse on one side and then the picture is on the other side of the appropriate moral to be drawn. The other development in the, in the early age of the printed book was the appearance quite suddenly, and of course there's a technology behind this, uh, which we could talk about perhaps. Are we going to have questions? I do hope so. Yeah, very good. Um, appearing in the mid-16th century with technological changes, the possibility of inserting these figures into books. And above all, inserting so-called comely frontispieces, where the frontispiece is there to explain the argument of the book. It introduces you into the book. Now, frontispiece in 16th century English just means the facade of a building. It is the ordinary word for the facade of a building, a decorated facade. So its application to something you put into um, the title page of a book is originally a metaphor. And the metaphor is that of a gateway. So here is a, an example. I mean, this is actually a completely random example, but it's absolutely typical. This is um, Clement Edmund's commentary on Caesar of 1610. And notice what you're being offered is an entrance into the book. You get this magnificent Baroque introitus, and the perspective drawing takes you in to the book, where, in fact, you see armies massing. Right, where does Thomas Hobbes stand in this development? Well, if you think of how Hobbes' philosophy has habitually been treated, he's related not to the background of Renaissance visual culture, but rather to the so-called speaking in slightly old-fashioned terms, scientific revolution of the 17th century, the revolutionary age of Galileo, of Descartes. And, of course, nor is that a mistake. Um, Hobbes was a mathematician and a physicist as well as a political philosopher. He personally knew uh, Galileo, um, whom he revered, and he knew Descartes very well indeed, whom he detested. <laughs> However... As I've been saying, Hobbes was basically the product of a system of classical and especially rhetorical education that prevailed in late Renaissance Europe. And the important thing for me this evening is that he retains much of the values of that classical education all through his exceptionally long life. And among those commitments, I think none is more conspicuous in his writing than his fascination with the visual representation of philosophical ideas a typical humanist interest in showing you rather than telling you. And this idea of uh, making people see your arguments is strongly present in both of Hobbes's two major treatises on politics. His Latin treatise De Cive on the Citizen, published in 1642, and his masterpiece in political philosophy, I suppose still the greatest work of political philosophy in the English language, The Leviathan, published in 1651. Both these works are prefaced with elaborate and indeed spectacular iconographical frontispieces which serve to introduce Hobbes' argument. And indeed, the claim I want to make this evening really is that these are not just summaries of Hobbes' argument. They're Hobbes' summaries of Hobbes' argument. This is what he wants you to do. You go into the bookshop, you open the book, and you see these images, and they are how he wants you to understand the book. So... To look at these images, which is what I would like to do with you this evening, is, I hope, to unlock the secrets of the book. So let's look at the frontispiece that stands at the start of Hobbes' De Cive, 
1642. Here it is. This is the work of the French engraver Jean Matthäus, who was also the printer of the book, which Hobbes wrote, as you see, marked Paris, 1642. He goes into exile from the looming civil war in England in November uh, 1640. He didn't mind being thought uncourageous. He says in the autobiography, I was the first who fled. He got out of there as quickly as he could and goes to live in Paris where he publishes the work. The first thing, of course, a sceptic will say is, well, what reason do we have to suppose that Hobbes was actually involved in or even approved of this work, Matthäus, after all, is not just the engraver, um, but also the publisher and printer of the book. Well, there's very good reason to think that Hobbes has strong input, and here is the reason. This is the frontispiece of the manuscript copy of the De Kive in Chatsworth House still, um, which he presented to his patron, the Earl of Devonshire, in 1641, some months in advance of the printing. So here it says... Paris 1641, which of course is not correct. It was Paris 1642. This is the manuscript. Now, they're the same. I mean, they are absolutely the same design. Now, this pen drawing, for which Hobbes, by the way, may have been partially responsible, has an iconography of which he must have approved because this is a presentation copy he gives to his patron. But if he approved of that, then he certainly approved of um, this. Okay, let's look at this. The frontispiece, as you see, is organized around a very powerful visual pun. Most of what I'm going to talk about this evening is visual puns. And here we are looking at an account of the normative as well as the spatial sense of standing under someone or standing above someone, being above someone, being under someone. And, of course, the image is divided by an entablature which absolutely reinforces that visual pun. On the entablature, as you see, is written in Latin the word religio. All human life, you have just been told, takes place under religion. You have to be very literal-minded about these metaphors, I think. All human life is taking place under religion. And we need to remember that we are going to be judged by those who are above us. So above and below is playing a very great role here. Let's look above. Well, here I have, friends, a discovery to report about the provenance of this image. Uh, and I also want to emphasize it because this will, I'm afraid, be my only reference to specifically German cultural history this evening. My discovery is that Hobbes and Matthäus have been looking at a celebrated series of woodcuts by Albrecht Dürer, the Passio Christi, which he published in 1511. And here is the relevant Dürer woodcut. This shows, as you see, angels among the congregation of the blessed. It shows a long-haired, naked woman uh, prominent amongst those who have been saved. It shows the congregation of the saved being shepherded towards a beam of sunlight, and it shows Christ enthroned in heavenly clouds. All of those features are simply taken up and repeated by Hobbes. The angels amid the congregation, the long-haired, naked woman prominent among the saved, the congregation being shepherded towards a beam of light, and Christ enthroned in heavenly clouds. So there is, I mean, of course, um, the, the German tradition is extremely important, the woodcut tradition um, uh, in the 16th century. This is being taken up from that tradition, absolutely standard last judgment scene. So that's above. Let's look below. Now, again, you find a largely conventional image because what this recalls, surely, is the absolutely basic rhetorical idea that this is politics. This is called philosophical elements. The third part is concerning the citizen. And he says, I, I produced the third part first because of the crisis. Uh, and of course, the other two parts do come out over the next de homine, de kive, um, over the next 20 years. So here is concerning the citizen. We're in politics. There are two sides to the question in politics. There are always two sides to the question. And so here you see two figures opposed to one another putting to you the two sides of the question. 
And the question is, should you subject yourself to supreme political power, or should you seek to live a life of liberty? So there are the two opposing views, and you have imperium, and you have libertas. Okay, suppose you choose imperium. Subjecting yourself to supreme power, what do you get? Well, um, this is a figure of imperium. She's um, wearing a closed imperial crown. She holds aloft the sword of justice um, in her left hand, penal justice, and the scales of justice, distributive justice, in her right. You also learn that if you're willing to submit to power, what do you get? Well, you get security and you get prosperity of the kind illustrated in the landscape within which these figures in sunlight are harvesting the fruitful fields. And in the background, there is this city with no walls, a sunlit city on the hill. So that's what happens if you choose to submit yourself to power. Suppose you choose liberty. Now, the relation is so much inherited from classical antiquity, the value of liberty as a political value, that if you were to turn with this question in mind to the emblem books of the Renaissance, you would find that liberty is, of course, the best state of life. It is the state, because it's a state of self-government. And if you can make that part of citizenship, where that's to say citizens rule themselves, you have a free state. And this deep pun in early modern political theory about living in a free state. If you live in a free state, that's to say a self-governing republic, you live in a free state because you govern yourself. So this is what you would find in any Italian emblem book of the High Renaissance. And here is one of the best, uh, Achille Bocchi's um, uh, Symbolic Questions, 1574, Bologna. So here is Libertas, as she has, she tells us, on her flag, helmeted and in classical garb. Shown in the company of a lion to remind us that in Bologna, which of course is a republic, um, freedom is the ruling and the conquering force. And if you look at the book, this, it says that is what Bologna teaches you. It teaches you that freedom is the fundamental value in political life. I mentioned um, the genre, which I'm going to have to keep coming back to, of emblem books. And perhaps the most famous was originally published in 1611. Uh, it's in Pisa, isn't it? Yes, Pisa in 1611. This is Cesare Ripa's book called Iconologia. Um, I'll come back to Ripa quite a lot, but here he is. So here is Libertà. As before, classical garb, of course, liberty, the great classical value, as Livy had told you, you know, Rome emancipating itself from the kings, becoming a free state, and what did that lead to? It conquered the world. So this combination of freedom and, um, and wealth is again something which obsesses early modern Europe. They can't help noticing that the two richest cities in Europe are Venice and Amsterdam. So what do they have in common? Their republics. Hmm. Worth thinking about. So liberty um, is in classical garb. She has a scepter in her right hand to show you that freedom reigns. She is governing herself. And she has a Pileus, the cap of liberty, to signify her independence from servitude. She's also shown, and the accompanying Latin verse explains this, in the company of a cat, because cats love freedom. <laughs> now let's look at the De Kive. What you're going to see now is iconographically incredible at the time. Liberty, unprecedented piece of iconography here, shown as an unwanted, savage, in a burdensome state. So a hunched figure, no protection. She's going to have to protect herself. So she has a bow in her left hand and an arrow in her right. No sense here of liberty as a ruling force. On the contrary, to commit yourself to freedom is to commit yourself to a savage and a dangerous way of life. So her face riven with anxiety not the smiling face we saw on Imperium, and also no classical robes here. The body is in a state of primitive undress. So gone is any thought that freedom will be connected with wealth, with social betterment, with security. A life of freedom is nothing 
but savagery. Now that thought leads me to a further uh, discovery I want to re report to you, which is that if you ask, well, what is the visual source for that? It is iconographically unique in the portrayal of Libertas, but does it have a source? And the answer is yes, it has a very clear source as far as I can see, which is that Hobbes is drawing on what was beginning to be made aware to Western Europeans in the generation before this, which is the life of Native Americans. And especially Virginia was very important. And it's very important in this connection that Thomas Hobbes was a member of the, uh, member of the Virginia Company. He sat on it on behalf of the Earl of Devonshire, who was a tremendous investor in Virginia. So very much on Hobbes's mind. But America is more strongly on his mind in a general way, it would seem to me, looking at his image. And going back to Cesare Reaper, what do you think of this? America. It's exactly as we see in the Hobbes frontispiece, a skirted female figure in semi-undress who's holding a bow in her left hand and an arrow in her right. But still more relevant is this image. This is... This is wonderful, isn't it? Here is Thomas Harriet's Report Upon the Newfound Land of Virginia, published in 1590. The engraving, this is an engraving um, by Debris, shows a North Carolinian Algonquin chief. We see him front and back, and he's standing in a rather Castellone pose, don't you think? It's a very Renaissance pose he's been given. Um, standing in a fanciful landscape in which a hunt is taking place. Now, the frontispiece of the Dekive reproduces several features of Debris' landscape, but turns them into something much more sinister. As you see here, the hunt pictured by Debris shows four braves with bows and arrows shooting at a stag. But if we go back to Hobbes' frontispiece, this shows three near-native men um, two of whom are similarly armed, but they are shooting at two fellow human beings who are running for their lives, not at a stag. They're attempting to shoot their own kind. And a fourth stands ready, ready with a club to kill him if the arrows should miss. So, as I began by saying, speaking about the De Kive, the idea of the frontispiece, the entrance to the book is that it's going to summarize the argument for you. What are you about to read? Well, here we have the whole story and you can see what the summary is. It is, you are likely, educated as you have been in the classics, to think that a life of liberty is a life of freedom for you and wealth for all, but you are so wrong. It would have been a shocking thing to see this. There are two sides to the question and you've just chosen wrong. This is what you have to choose. Submission to supreme authority is what's in your best interests. Well, there's the De Kive. Now, after Hobbes published that work in 1642, uh, he says modestly, the first work of political science ever written, <laughs> Scientia Politica, he then returns to his scientific interests. He's got a trilogy to write. You notice it says Sectio Tertia, the third section. That's come out first. He's now got to write De Corpore, and he's got to write De Homine. It takes him many years to do so, but that's what he turns to. And he spends the next few years writing the first, writing the De Corpore. But in 1649, when Hobbes is still in exile in France, the English concluded the Civil War which they've been uh, fighting since 1642 by executing the king and abolishing the institution of monarchy in Great Britain in perpetuity. Actually, we still got them, but um, <laughs> that, that, that was the idea in 1649. Now, Hobbes felt that he had to comment on those revolutionary events. And so he says, I stopped work upon my day corporate, which indeed he did. It doesn't, doesn't come out until 1655. And he wrote in a white heat, he wrote it in one year, The Leviathan, uh, his great work of political philosophy. Now here again, Hobbes wants you to have a frontispiece. You are to open the book. It has a title page, but separate from the title page, there is 
an iconographical frontispiece which summarizes the argument of the book, and the result is an extremely famous image. This is a folio size etching. I got this from across the road. Quite expensive, actually, the British Library, but anyway, <laughs> here it is the first imprint of the first edition of the Leviathan. It's a folio size etching, and it stands opposite the title page of the book. Well, let's go into the sceptical question again, first of all. What makes you think Hobbes had anything to do with that? Well, here is the answer. This version of the frontispiece was produced by Hobbes in late 1650, six months before the printing of the book, and this is the frontispiece of the unique manuscript of Leviathan, which is to be found also across the way uh, in the British Library, and this was presented by Hobbes in 1650 to his future sovereign, King Charles II, who was, of course, like Hobbes, in exile in Paris at the time. Now, this version is an ink drawing on vellum, but for me what's crucial is that, as you can see, it's basically the same design as the published one. The only significant change is that whereas in the published version there are lots of people whose backs you see forming the torso of the Colossus, here you see faces looking out at you, and I'll come back to that. Apart from that major change, there is almost no difference between the original uh, pen drawing and the, in the uh, etching. So we can safely assume that he approved of this because this is what he hands personally to his own future sovereign. But if he approved of that, then he approved of the Leviathan frontispiece as published. As to the identity of the artist in both cases, this has only been recently established. Uh, you'll be pleased to know by Germany's greatest art historian, Horst Bredekamp, who has established beyond reasonable doubt, well, of course, historians of art are not reasonable people, but beyond any other sort of doubt, that the, uh, the person who designed both this and the printed version is Abram Boss, who was actually the most celebrated etcher of 17th century France, and was a close friend of Hobbes, and Noel Malcolm, who knows everything about Hobbes, discovered uh, that uh, Boss's workshop was just round the corner from the Pont Neuf, where Hobbes lived in exile. So I now want to focus on this image. I want to focus on, the, of course, now we're back with a published image, uh, and also what I want to do, as before, is to try to talk about the context in which you need to place this image in order for you to understand what's going on. Looking at this image, the published version of the Leviathan, what strikes me first of all in relation to the De Kive is the almost complete repudiation of so much of what Hobbes thought was crucial to his earlier political program. Of course, there are continuities, and one important continuity is that this is a figure at the top. The Colossus is a figure of imperium, or suprema potestas. Um, it's true that this time in Hobbes it's differently gendered. Um, if we go back to the um, De Kive, um, here you have imperium. Of course, imperium in Latin is a neuter noun, so it can be shown as a man or a woman. Hobbes has chosen to show it as a woman, I suppose because libertas has to be a woman because the, 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 verb, the, the, the noun is a feminine in gender in Latin. But anyway, the gender is different, but both are images of suprema potestas. Uh, unquestionably, this is a male, um, but he is also unquestionably Suprema Potestas. That's to say, he also has a closed imperial crown, and it's imperial crown, and he also carries the sword of justice. And notice, above his head, a verse from the book of Job, which confirms that we are looking at a representation of sovereignty. There is no power over the earth that can be compared to him. He is Suprema Potestas. No Potestas is above him. But even here, it seems to me, the changes in the iconography from the De Kive to the Leviathan are extraordinary. I mean, Hobbes has really changed his mind, and he wants you to be able to see this in the two images. You would expect, would you not, to see Imperium or Potestas represented in classical pose and garb. I mean, they always were. Um, back to Reaper. Here is Potesta. 
shown in classical garb, seated on a throne, um, and with a scepter in her left hand. And of course, we have also seen this in the De Kive. Here, there is nothing classical at all. You could certainly not say there's anything classical in the dress of the Colossus because the Colossus is not wearing any dress because his body is not that of a natural person. It is a body politic made up of his own subjects. A yet more striking element of the anti-classicism that we find in this text is that Hobbes has completely given up the fundamental idea of rhetorical culture that there are always two sides to the question. I think that that's really the fundamental thought in Hobbes' political philosophy. There are not two sides to the question. We're, we're trying to make this a science. We're moving beyond rhetoric into science. There were, of course, two sides here. But if you now look at that and then look at this again, there are no two sides. There's just one dominating figure. And in a way, what you're being told is, look, don't think about choices here. There's no choice about politics. You're born into this condition. There's no choice. I think a yet more striking alteration relates to the place in Hobbes' argument of the Christian religion, and especially the Christian church. Um, as we saw in the De Kive frontispiece, the idea of a day of judgment dominates the whole of human life. It is what is above Everything. We are under it. Everything is under judgment. No one is above him. It even says so. There is no power above him. No one stands above the Colossus. That's an extraordinary thing to have happened from the day of judgment to this figure who judges. Notice also in the De Kive case that imperium is a purely civil force. It is a force for justice, and it has the scales of justice and the sword of justice. But this is not a purely civil power. The Colossus, of course, holds the sword of justice, but he also holds a crozier. The crozier is held only by bishops. It is the symbol of ecclesiastical power, but it is held here not by a bishop, but by a Colossus. So there's the relationship between the De Kive and the Leviathan. De Kive, an important context for the Leviathan, because the theory has changed, it has moved on so extraordinarily. But I now want to broaden this notion of context and talk about a wider visual context that the whole humanist genre of emblematic frontispieces may be said to furnish us with. So the first thing I would want to say here is that the strongest visual convention in frontispieces of this time is that a book is a precious object. It is worthy of protection. It is worthy of support. Now, the supporters of books are usually, of course, military figures, and they're going to be placed by classical columns because they are standing by the title of the book. I stand by you. Another important visual pun. I support you. Uh, I help to uphold you. So here is a very famous frontispiece. Here is Chapman's translation of Homer's Iliad. And we're back with two sides to the question. Notice, the rival heroes stand armed and opposed to one another. Hector, leader of Troy, on the right, against Achilles, leader of the Greeks, on the left. But notice, at the same time, they're supporters of the book. They stand next to pillars. They're pillars of strength. Um, and the metaphor here is that they, they uphold Homer's book. They're standing by. Now, a yet better example of this is the third major frontispiece, which I introduce now non-chronologically because it is the frontispiece to Hobbes' first ever published work, his translation of Thucydides' history, which he published in 1629, with this spectacular emblematic frontispiece. The, it's an engraving, and the engraver here is Thomas Cecil, the best dry point engraver of the time. Well, again, notice two sides to the question. Here is Archidamus, um, the king of Sparta, uh, opposing Pericles, the leader of the Athenian democracy. But notice again 
they're supporters of the book. They stand by the book. They stand next to pillars. They're pillars of strength, and they uphold it, protecting the title. So what has happened to that convention if we turn to the Leviathan frontispiece? Well, something very extraordinary has happened. It's both preserved and subverted. Um, in the lower part of the Leviathan frontispiece, you do indeed see columns. And there's an entablature across. You see one column here, one column here, and they are next to the title. Are they supporters of the title? No, these are the deadly enemies of the Commonwealth. What do you see on the left? You see a castle, site of the overmighty nobility, with a cannon firing from the ramparts. And underneath, you see a, um, a marquis's coronet. And underneath, um, on the other side, of course, the, the other threatening force, just as the nobility in their castles, is the clergy in their churches. And just as the coronet symbols the nobility, so the um, mitre symbolizes the church. Below these images, uh, there's another important metaphor here, which is how are the claims of the church and the nobility upheld? Halfway down the left-hand column, you see how the nobility uphold their power, this mighty cannon which is pointed directly at the Commonwealth. And the large panel underneath, of course, shows banners, swords, um, nasty, pointed, sharpened ends of pikes. What about the right-hand column? Well, what you see there, you probably know this, but that is the, the standard emblematic form of a thunderbolt, the thunderbolt of execution, which, of course, is the power of the church. Th th this thunders, but that also thunders. You're meant to be reading across, of course, as well as down. Well, you have these very nasty, pointed um, lances here and swords and pikes but this is just as nasty and as pointed and this made horns it says dilemma and this says syllogism they're nasty and pointed as well they will also do you a great deal of harm and then the deep metaphor which we are left with is what is the lowest depth to which all of this can make a commonwealth sink well here's one answer civil war here they are colliding in battle but it's just as bad here what is this this is the catholic church in session, their berettas mark them out as members of an inquisition, and they're using their nasty pointed weapons to use their horrible power, and all against the power of the state. So here are the dangerous enemies of the Commonwealth. How should you respond to these dangerous enemies? Well, you can't get rid of them. The phrase that they love to use in this time, I mean, the, the person who uses it over and over in the translation is Baudin in the Six Livres de la République. The translator, Sandis, always speaks of keeping your enemies under. Keep them under. Keep them down. Keep them under. And actually, that's exactly what you see. They've been kept under. They're there. You can't get rid of them. But they are forces of disorder, and the city must sit on top of them. They must be prevented from destabilizing it. And, of course, you have the sword on the one side, which will prevent destabilization by aristocratic faction because it will be in the hands of the Colossus and not in their hands. And the prevention of destabilization by the equally, uh, uh, what should we say, treasonous uh, church will be prevented because the Colossus holds the um, symbol of ecclesiastical authority as well as the symbol of civil authority. Okay, let me end by turning to the figure of the Colossus. What is this that we're looking at? Well, often it's been said, well, this is the sovereign. Um, now, I have, as it happens, never met the Queen, but I bet she's not made up of lots of little people. I mean, no, this is not a natural person at all. This is an artificial person. This is not a natural body. This is a, a body politic. So what exactly are we looking at, if not at a sovereign? Well, that takes you absolutely into the heart of Hobbes's political theory. And it's shown here, but it's not explained. And I think that's the one case where there's something fundamental in the text, which is 
shown but not explained in the frontispiece. So I will take five minutes to try to explain it. I need to say a word about how Hobbes thinks states come to be set up, or as he likes to say, instituted. They're instituted by a covenant, and everyone who is going to be a subject of the state must covenant to become a subject of the state, because that alone authorizes the state, because you are the author. With Hobbes, it goes author, authorize, authority. So the act of covenanting is an act of authorization, and it's a complex one, in which three changes take place. First, us who are covenanting. We're just a multitude. But when we covenant, we change our ontological character. When we agree in Hobbes' covenant, as we, much, as we must, each with each as to whom we are to authorize to be our sovereign, to represent us, we gain a single will and a single voice because we gain that of our sovereign representative whose will and voice now count as our will and voice because he speaks and acts or she speaks and acts in our name. But that is to say, Hobbes says, that we are not a multitude any longer. We were until we came together to government. We were all sorts of people, individuals, but now we are one person because we have one will. We have one voice and that's what it is to be a person. We're not, of course, a real person. We are a fictional person. But we are one. Now, secondly, Hobbes says, when a multitude becomes, through the act of authorizing someone to speak and act in their name, becomes one, the sovereign whom you have authorized, of course, represents that person. Sovereign can't represent the multitude because the multitude has a multitude of wills. And you can't possibly suppose that you could conduct politics sensibly by asking the people, what is your will? <laughs> Finally, and most crucially, the name of the fictional person that we brought into being by agreeing as a multitude to be represented by a sovereign is said to be the state. That is the name of that person. And Hobbes gives it a proper name as well as a common name, and the name is Leviathan. What you are looking at is Leviathan, but Leviathan is the name of the state. A multitude of individuals is what you're looking at, artificially brought together into a single body politic by way of subjecting themselves to, and of course it is then a natural um, head, because he's head of state. It's a natural head of a body politic, which is a fiction. So you're seeing the moment of union in which the state is created. The many have come together to be governed by one person. So that's the end of the story, except since I have five more minutes, I will hope to hold your attention to say that Hobbes wants you to see one other thing which you are actually looking at very strongly here, which is, if you take it in close-up, the crozier and the sword are making a diagonal. There's a strong diagonal there. And just as the mystical body of the state floats above the people, so some, something is floating above this shape. And this is what's floating above this shape. If you draw out the diagonals, this is what you get. Now, what is the iconographical significance of that? There, it encompasses the entire image that we've been looking at this evening. Well, obvious, within the Christian tradition, the three sides and the three angles of the triangle make it the symbol of the Trinity. God is three, but God is one. And as the printing of the Christian Bible began to be authorized in England, we begin to find Bibles published with frontispieces showing this threefold nature of God symbolized by a triangle. It's a very new post-Reformation, anti-Sokinian piece of iconography. Uh, so, for example, here is the Geneva Bible as printed in 1607. This is William Hole's frontispiece, very early one. Look at the top. This is the earliest biblical frontispiece to show a triangle. It's enclosing the tetragrammaton, um, Yahweh, the standard version of God's name in Hebrew. There is the triangle. 
Or what about this? Here is the Book of Common Prayer, as printed in 1618. The first one to be printed again with the triune God, shown as a triangle. But most significantly for my present purposes, notice this. Now this is done by Abram Boss. This is the frontispiece done by Boss in the same year that he did the frontispiece for the Leviathan for Delancourt's Consolation de l'Âme. Again, the triangle, now in a blaze of light. And just to remind you of those little faces that were looking out from the Leviathan frontispiece in the pen drawing, there they are again looking out at us from the triangle. But what is this hovering triangle telling you about the idea of the state? Well, here I do end, because this is the culminating point for Hobbes, I think, and why he wants you to be looking at the image that we're now looking at. First of all, the state is a god. It is triune, just as God is. It's a mortal god, as Hobbes says, because men have made it. But nonetheless, it is the god to which, under the immortal God, we owe our peace and defense. But notice that Hobbes is confirming that, like the immortal God, the mortal God is a unity made up of three persons. There's the person of the sovereign, who is the head of the state, a man or woman. Hobbes has a mild preference for women, but actually he shows it as a man. Um, Next, there is the person of the multitude. That's to say, here they are. They've come together. They're not a multitude. They've come together as one, um, artificially, because it's simply through the act of covenanting. But thirdly, as a result, over it is this ghostly third person who is represented by the sovereign, doesn't represent the multitude, but represents the person of the multitude. And if you have a sovereign representing that multitude as a person... What you have is the state. So lastly, Hobbes says, and you see it again illustrated, what attitude should you now take to the state? Well, here is the answer. You see, um, everyone is another very deep pun. They're looking up to the head of the state. I look up to you. I respect you. They're not reverencing him, by the way. Reverence in the 17th century would, of course, have to be shown by removing your hat. Nobody has removed their hat. Everyone is wearing a hat. But they're looking up with civil respect. And notice that all subjects are involved. It's usually said these are just men, but actually there's a, there's a woman with a baby here. There are children here. There are a clergymen. There are soldiers. There are men and women and children, and they have all come together as one. So it seems to me that the final message of the frontispiece, and here I really do come to an end, is that it is the duty of the state, which is what you're looking at a picture of, to receive under its protection all of us equally and with equal respect, and we are equally protected. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.